you're listening to Love and Science here on uh, BCFM and it's always great to uh, have your company on Monday afternoons and uh, of course I am joined uh, as usual by Hannah Beswick. Hello. Hi Hannah and uh, by Juliana Kukro. Hi Juliana, how are you doing? Hi, how are you? Oh good, good thanks. This is your <laughs> third visit I think to the show but the second time the listeners have heard you so yes uh, the second time i speak (laughs) now and and this week i know this week because you're studying science communication at ue i happen to know that this week you've been busy making radio programs with your with your colleagues how'd it go it went well i think it's kind of um yeah i think it went well overall it was nerve-wracking but also really fun to do (laughs) (laughs) is is it something that comes easy to you or or are you were you really stressed by it because because i know you had to do an as live radio well what am i saying you're doing a a real live radio program now but of course uh, you're not responsible for it today no uh, no I'm not responsible for today, thankfully. <laughs> but <laughs> well, actually, I think I'm going to go. I'm going to nip out and get a cup of coffee. So, it's you interesting. Know, I'll leave you in charge because you, you, you know that people will be listening, but in the studio it feels very cozy and friendly, so you, it's less scary. Yes, I think one of the lovely things about radio, of course, is it's a really quite an intimate thing, and uh, it's just a relationship between us and our dear listener. And we're so glad that you're there, dear listener. And ha- and Hannah, you've been uh, this week uh, up in London, I think. Yeah, I spent a spent a couple of days in London. Um, it was it's nice. I really like London. I love it there. But the weather was so horrible. And what, what cold or just, wet? Yeah, like I don't mind the cold if it's dry, but it was just just a bit on and off rainy all the time. So like I went out mm-hmm. to try and go to a couple of monuments uh, and like old buildings that had been um, bombed during the war, and they were just a shell of themselves. Yeah, and I got there and they were all closed and I was just stood outside in the rain thinking well this is this is good this is great (laughs) (laughs) oh dear it comes to something when they close monuments that have been bombed doesn't it I mean really really that's uh, just not on um (laughs) So uh, we're looking at science in the news, science behind the news. One of the first stories we've picked up for this week uh, is that it's every well, lots of people have been talking about this about the orca whale that apparently can talk. Now we need to just be careful here because uh, this is not Doctor Doolittle. Uh, this is not uh, animals that have suddenly started to speak English. Although, in fact, allegedly they are making english-like sounds i don't think anybody's pretending that the orca understands what it's saying but it does this orca whale does seem to be um mimicking yeah uh, it's it's successful well in terms successfully replicating several sounds that have been put to it yeah Uh, Yeah. so some of those are like the name amy or hello or bye-bye or how are you yeah Yeah. but as well as that they've also had some people trying to make orca sounds and then get the orca to replicate those and they think he does just as good a job at that as well oh right 
But in the case of the or- an orca making orca sounds, presumably it understands it's, it's, it has some meaning for the orca. Yeah, it, it does yeah. seem a little bit like, to me, I don't know about you guys, but to me it does seem like a, a bit of a party trick that they do uh, sea life or something like that, they say. Because it's, it's, like ah. it's a copy. Uh, the way they're making, getting the orca to do this is using the copy command, yeah. which is saying, uh, teaching them to just hear something and then copy it back rather than um like there's no indication that the orca wiki in in france understands what amy means or what hello means or what one two three mean at all yeah i don't i don't think they're actually communicating with the orca it's more like a training thing like a trick like you said and it's also i think you have to take it with a pinch of salt because in the video where you, you first hear a person talking and then you hear the orca talking. Yes. So it kind of presets your brain to identify the pattern in yes. something that perhaps would just be a, a string of sounds. Now, now this yeah. is a really interesting point, isn't it? Because I, I, I can remember, um, I mean, somebody will, will uh, correct me, um, uh, actually... Uh, uh, John Ford, when he when he comes in, uh, might know something about this. But I can remember there being a court case years and years ago when they were accusing the Rolling Stones or somebody like that of hiding secret messages in uh, in records so that um, when the record was played backwards, it was saying something like, Freddie's a devil or something like yeah. that. And it was a, a charge of a sort of corrupting young people. But like you say, if you tell somebody that a particular random noise has a meaning that it actually this is a person saying something yes because and we're so good at creating patterns mm. uh, and finding patterns in things we we will impose uh, a sound w- when there isn't one there we'll say oh yeah I, i'm sure he was saying um hello but he isn't actually saying hello do you think that's what's going on here i think it could be a bit of that yes uh, because we also do that visually for example, all of the people who see Jesus as the image in the mold or the virgin yes. in the f- in the wall. Um, yes. Those sorts of things. It's as the same as well as when people see faces in their wardrobe or faces in the, I don't know, the one toilet. The things, uh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. I see faces in the toilet, but that's usually because I've walked in and somebody's in there. <laughs> They shout, they sh- they sh- yes, exactly. They shout at me. Um, yeah. uh, is there? But let's say, for example, so we've got two interesting ideas here. One yeah. is uh, the uh, amazing ability of human beings to impose, to find a pattern. Mm. That's why we'll stare into a fire and say, "I can see a face," or, or mm. look at a cloud and say, "Oh yes, I can see a boat," or something like that. Um, and then. Uh, there's this thing where animals, we, kn- we know for certain that there are several animals who can mimic and can copy, famously birds, of course, certain yeah. uh, kinds of birds can do that. Is there value in, the, in finding this out? If, we, if, we've, if we've just found out that orca whales can uh, mimic sounds, is that useful? I think uh, one of the things they say in, in the article that we've got from uh, The Guardian is that 
it's it's important because we can we're looking at how they how they are making the sounds because they don't have the same uh, the same brain or the same um, vocal apparatus apparatus that we have. So it's it's interesting to see how close they can get to our sounds just using what they have. Now mm. it's interesting to note that all of the sounds that Wiki's making it is are when. Its head is out of the water, which will sound different to when its head is in the water. But we do know um, about orcas that they have different dialects, let's say, between different pods, which can mean that there's um, they can't communicate as well, like speaking different languages. And I think it, it, it gives what it, what it's doing is giving us a, a better understanding of how those dialects might evolve if something can mimic, but maybe not exactly get the sound right from another pod and it's part of a, a wider communication study i think that's the impression that i got anyway i don't know yes, about you guys i think uh, with dialects it's interesting to see if they are exclusively learned or whether there is a constraint in the mechanism that mm. produces the sound and then maybe that could potentially evolve genetically instead of just being a learned behavior but it is a common thing with birds and also generally all the animals that communicate acoustically and in a long distance that they tend to have dialects just like us. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it is, it is, yeah. they found that we found this with crows, of course. Yeah. And with other animals. Parrots are and, particularly and, well known yeah. for being able to learn and understand human language quite well, actually. Yes, but and, and, and also the whole the dialect thing that Juliana was just, mm. just, just talking about, that depending on where you come from, yeah. um, uh, the, the, the animal will make a sound, but in a slightly, slightly different way. Apparently, yeah. uh, I don't know any, I don't know, I can't cite the research on this, but apparently dogs in different parts of Britain yeah. have slightly and different, different countries barks. Countries have a different bark, different yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I think that. I've heard that before as well. It yeah. might be from a joke about whether or not cows moo differently in other countries, but like I think I've heard that before. <laughs> this is a, a, a story about a talking orca, but uh, perhaps not talking, just copying sounds. Uh, writing in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society uh, of Biological Sciences, researchers from institutions in Germany, UK, Spain and Chile describe how they carry out the latest research with Wiki, a 14-year-old female orca who lives in an aquarium in France. Uh, Wiki's not the first animal to have managed the feat of producing human sounds. Dolphins, elephants, parrots, orangutans and even beluga whales have all been captured mimicking our utterances. Anyway, you're listening to uh, Love and Science here on uh, BCFM. Uh, we are on... Uh, 92, 93, uh, 93.2 <laughs> FM or radio.com uh, and as I usually say if you are listening to us you must know one of those things um, but you might not know that you can uh, listen to us uh, also uh, you can listen to our podcast uh, which is a Podbean podcast Love and Science uh, 
which you can Google and uh, easily find. Uh, that is a version of uh, this program with all the music taken out, and that's for uh, People on the Go, created <laughs> by our own uh, Andrew Glester. Uh, so you just have the chat. You just have the benefit of the genius of our conversation. And the more the, condensed the sparkling wit of our conversation. <laughs> that's no, pressure. Yeah, yeah, no pressure at all now. Uh, and, of course, you can go to the uh, BCFM uh, website and uh, look at uh, Love and Science, and uh, you can listen to the programme in full. And we go back a long, long way, so you can listen to uh, past uh, episodes uh, of the programme as well. Or anything else of the great stuff uh, that's produced uh, every day on uh, BCFM radio. Well, uh, we have been looking at science in the news, science behind the news, and the next story is one that's um, it's been around, I think, for about a year and a half. Uh, it made uh, a few headlines, but it's come back uh, because um, uh, there's been some movement on it. UK doctors select first women to have, quotes, three-person babies. Yes. And uh, so, Hannah, what is a, what is a three-person baby? So a, three, a three-person baby does, it's quite, it's not, it's not quite what it sounds. It, is, it does involve three people in the sense that um, some people need to have, um, let me start that again. The three-person baby, <laughs> the, okay, the, the fertilized okay. egg, is made from um, an egg that's fertilized from the mother and the father. Yeah. Uh, and then the nucleus from that fertilized egg is taken out from the egg and put into an egg from somebody else. Right. And that's, that's the third person that comes in, is that the egg comes from somewhere else. In this, yeah. No, no. Well, I was going to say, why would you do this? Yeah. So, um, for this particular instance, uh, the two women who have been selected for the UK uh, trial of this, who've had approval from the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, have mutations in a gene that can cause something called uh, MRFS syndrome, which is um, myoclonic epilepsy with ragged red fibers, uh, which oh. is a mitochondrial-based disorder um, that is a, it's been described as a devastating um, syndrome to have, and it can cause uh, things like it causes spasms early on um, in, in a person, and as it progresses, it is a progressive disease. It then causes muscle, loss of muscle control, weakness, and can result in uh, deafness and dementia as well. Wow. It's a disorder that is... So it's devastating it is, condition. Yeah, it's really yeah. devastating. Sounds horrible. Yeah, yes. and if you know that uh, for these particular women, they know they have this uh, mutation in that gene, it would get passed on to their children. Because it's mitochondrial-based... Um, and the mitochondria is in the egg part, it's not in the nucleus of the fertilized egg, you can take the completely healthy nucleus out, away from the mitochondria that's got the defective gene, and put it in a, an egg from someone else that doesn't have the defective gene in the mitochondria. So we should, we should just say, as we go along, mitochondria are uh, um, uh, little um, parts of cells, mm -hmm. of... of, of say in this uh, in this case human cells and they are really the powerhouses like the batteries aren't yeah. they yes uh, that's the, the, where the, the, the power the, the the cells just just in case people are thinking what's a mitochondria yeah it's um 
that's where the metabolism, the breaking down of sugars goes on within each cell. And that's how cells get their, their energy. Okay. And, and, um, and in this disease, yes. it's, it's gone wrong. It's quite interesting because uh, eggs, female eggs, have all the energy requirement for the developing embryo. So that's why mitochondria are only passed from the mother to the child. So you will never get your father's mitochondria. You will right. only get your mother's mitochondria, which is where the third person eggs come come into play. Okay. So, um, but you, do you think you could? Um, I'm not talking so much science here. I guess we're getting into sociology here. But mm. would you say, well, I actually have three parents if you'd if you'd been born as a result of this process? Well, I think it, I think that. This, and this is just my personal opinion. I think you would think of it in much the same way as having a surrogate. Um, would, would, would you consider the th- surrogate a third parent um, in that situation? Some people would, uh, some people wouldn't. So I think it very much depends on the people who are yeah. undergoing the procedure as to how they view um, that third person's um, I think it's particularly it. interesting because mitochondria also have their own DNA. So in this case, it's just not a borrowed womb. It's also a set of genes that you inherit mm. with those mitochondria. Yeah. So that, I think, adds another layer of complexity to that. You will have so you will the have DNA from your relation. two parents in your cell's nucleus, but then you will also have some relation because that's why mitochondrial DNA is used in a lot of evolutionary studies and to track down, I don't know, loads of stuff, but... It right. has to do with heritage and things like that. It, yeah, it, it does have to, a lot to do with heritage. Yeah. So, so you're not so so um, the, the the woman who uh, where we borrow her basically uh, her mitochondria. Yeah. Uh, she is actually um, biologically connected to the child. Yeah. She, yeah. They'll have her, her yeah. mitochondria. Mitochondrial oh, DNA, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's an amazing technique and it's saving lives. Inevitably, some people are going to find that controversial. Or it yeah. will, or it will, we'll hope, we hope that it will save lives. So they've got to the point now where they're, they're choosing the women uh, who are going to um, take part in, in, in these, these experimental, these, trial, um, these trials. And um, the whole thing is moving forward. Yeah. I mean, with, with just with normal IVF, there was controversy with that when that first came out. Um, but people now do see that it's a really beneficial technique to have. Um, the issue with, with this kind of, um, of genetic disorder is that IVF won't be able to... Um, it wouldn't work in the same way because you can have a pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which is where with IVF you've got several um, fertilized eggs and you can screen them to see if any of them um, are healthy and any of them are, are, are not going to be viable or will have a devastating um, disorder. But with this kind of mitochondrial disorder, you won't be able to select them out in that process in the normal way we would because it only it must the pre-implantation genetic <laughs> diagnosis relies on the idea that some of the embryos will be healthy, whereas in this situation, none of them would be. Right. Mm. Okay. So, revolutionary treatment, and we just hope it. Uh, I hope it works it well. Makes really. people's lives better. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Yes. Absolutely. Well, we're we're moving from um, sort of energy-hungry cells to hungry bears. 
how's that how's that for a, for a link a little bit artificial uh, perhaps yeah, segue. <laughs> um uh, this is a story now you'll remember on the show just uh, um a few weeks ago uh we were talking about the there was um a story going around about a, a bear that was emaciated and uh people were saying well it's because of the shrinking ice that the bear is not able to feed and um others were pointing out well actually there's no evidence that the bear is is not able to get food because there isn't food uh, what was what was probably going on was that the bear was dying and it was sick or maybe it was old and uh, that you know that is part of the natural process and although uh, certainly on this show we like to uh, shout n- n- loudly that it's very very important for us to take care of the planet and uh, to care for the planet and to worry about uh, um, climate change and all of that that's we have no doubts about that sometimes uh, stories aren't what they seem and so we re- we we reported uh, on that um, but there's a new uh, story uh, out the BBC the one that we've been looking at has carried that uh, and that is people who've been tracking uh, polar bears uh, for around about uh, two years now using high-tech trackers uh, uh, high-tech tracking high-tech tracking collars on nine female polar bears uh, and they've been measuring the animals efforts to find food on the diminishing Arctic ice so in the northern hemisphere uh, each bear wore a collar, recording video location and activity levels uh, for 8 to 12 days while the metabolic traces tracked the bear's energy use. And it revealed that most of the animals were unable to catch enough prey to meet their energy needs. Have, have either of you, Juliana or Hannah, uh, had a look at this story? Uh, yes, I did have a look at it. It's. What do you think? I think it's interesting. I think they have a lot of solid research to back it up. And basically people weren't worrying about polar bears and their nutrition because their predatory technique is called sit and wait. (laughs) So basically (laughs) they are sitting around uh, waiting for a prey to come. And when that happens, they go catch it. Yes. So in this sense, they are thought to be less active than grizzly bears or brown bears who are actually walking around looking for the prey. Yeah. 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 The sit and wait technique is supposed to save energy. Right. Which I guess makes sense if you're living in an extremely cold environment. So you've, uh, you know, you're spending a lot of energy just staying alive. Certainly. But what is what this new study shows is that actually polar bears are now walking around more often than anyone previously thought and one hypothesis of this is that well, the ice is shrinking and with all of this they don't the prey doesn't come around that often so now they have to go out and seek it so so the idea is that, there are, that there's there's not so much to eat anymore yeah. and, and why would that be well, I think climate change is the obvious culprit in this scenario. But uh, sure, but they eat, they eat fish, they eat... Yes. What is happening is the seal population is going down yeah. as well. Yeah. And uh, the thing is that seals so have... Seals. seals. are very fatty, and that's good for your energy requirements. Yes, yeah. When you're a polar bear, so... 
Right. Okay. So climate change is is uh, dispatching the 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 food. Um, it says that uh, in spring 2014, 2015, 2016, uh, a researcher at the University of California, Santa Cruz, his, his name was um, Anthony Pagano, um, set out to track the polar bears hunting and survival. And uh, they captured nine females on the sea ice of the Beaufort Sea. That must have been quite stressful, I would have thought, for the, for the bears. Yeah, it doesn't say um, in this particular article, it doesn't say how they captured them um but yeah i can imagine that that wouldn't win wouldn't have been the best time yes and when you capture bears it's uh, already dangerous because when they're unconscious their body temperature lowers even further and i can imagine this can be quite tricky yes in, in the poles yes well i guess they they follow very um uh, carefully vetted procedures but as you as you say it still may have had an influence on the on the bears, uh, we, we we don't know that. It's thought that bears might catch a couple um, uh, of seals per month, compared to uh, five. To, uh, sorry, in the, in the autumn, compared to five to ten per month in the spring and the early summer. Mm. So, what they will eat yeah. at different times of uh, of the year uh, varies. And that is due to that's due to two things. It seems uh, from from what I've read, one of them is that in the in the spring and the summer the seals are younger and they're more naive and they'll take more risks. But um, by the autumn they're a bit older and they're they're stronger swimmers and things like that. They'll be able to get away. But with the reducing sea ice, there's less less platform for them to get sort of further into the seals' territory mm. where they can sit and, and wait. They have to they have to make an effort to go into the areas where the seals will be and just just getting there would be the effort that's burning a lot more energy mm. they certainly are a very poignant symbol aren't they mm. of um, climate change yeah you know they yes. really do uh, it's stark mm. we sort of sit up and take notice and we see a polar bear uh, struggling yeah. uh, for food all right well um we're going to have some music after that uh, we've got a story about how uh, we're using satellites to track ice Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Yes, indeed you are. And uh, we, uh, our next story is, as I was just saying before we uh, played the music, uh, we were talk- remember we were talking about uh, polar bears and how um, because of shrinking ice it means that the food is becoming um, uh, rarer and that the polar bears who generally, as Juliana said, basically sit and wait, uh, now actually have to uh, start moving around. And it's a challenge to uh, their metabolism and the way that they uh, do things so we're seeing hungry bears hungry hungry polar bears um connected to that is this story that uh, they're using space lasers to track uh, earth's ice and uh, jonathan amos from the bbc uh, has written up a little bit about this um that uh, the ice on the planet is in, in in his words a climate canary in other words uh, as the loss of ice tells us something about how global warming uh, is uh, progressing and in the arctic the most visible sign is the decline of sea ice which is measured uh, at its minimum extent over the ocean in september it's reducing uh, by 14 percent per decade um, so that's a huge rate 
of loss of ice. And at the other pole, the Antarctic, the marine flows look much the same as they did in the earliest satellite imagery from the 60s. Uh, but land ice is in a negative phase, which means we're losing um, ice off of the, off of the, the land. Um, on the order of 160 billion metric tonnes. Um, wow. being lost annually, annually, with most of that mass going from the west of the uh, Antarctic, uh, the continent of Antarctica. Um, but there are two satellites that have uh, been put up, um, uh, uh, or rather there are two 2018 missions of interest that are going to pick these trends up uh, and extend them into the future, um, as one is called Grace Follow-On, and the other one is called Ice Sat 2. I don't know if any of you, either of you, uh, have uh, seen this story. It's, it's, I only managed to have a quick, quick read yeah. over it. It is really interesting what they're going to be doing, because they're using... Um, using these two satellites in different ways. One of them is using lasers, but um, in in the I can't remember what the other one is using. But it's not lasers, not both of them. Um, but what they both are measuring is the the thickness of the amount of ice that is above the water level, which is called the freeboard. Um, and from that, you can measure how big the whole iceberg is or um, the, the piece of ice, because that freeboard area will be one ninth of, um, compared to, sorry, one ninth of the size of the, the draft, which is this part of the iceberg, which is underwater, which is a really interesting uh, technique to be able to do. Yes, it, it is. Um, the other uh, satellite is just using visual data, I think. Yes, okay. So it's just a kind of, you know, what you would imagine a satellite would do, whereas mm. uh, the, the, the other one, as you say, uh, Grace Follow-On, is going to be using um, a laser rangefinder. So yeah. it's just about get more accuracy. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think what they were saying is that the, the, the accuracy is improving from the last one. So Grace Follow-On is, is following on from another one, um, which was, I'm, I believe, called Grace. Yes. Um, and the improvement in the, the, the quality of the data they can get is the difference between um, a hair's breadth to that of a large virus. And it's going to be able to oh, map wow. the service to that level of detail, which is, is incredibly is fine. Amazing, yes. isn't it? Yes, apparently it's 10 to 20 times better. Mm than uh, what, what we can do at the moment. Um, another thing uh, that, that's quite interesting, of course, is that when you have... Um, I, uh, I think a lot of people don't realise this. If you have a melting iceberg, it makes no difference to uh, the uh, rise in sea level around the world. So you can have a huge iceberg that's floating in the water. Yeah. It makes no difference at all. If you have ice on land yeah. melting... It does make a difference. Yes, uh, it's making yes. a difference to the tune of 3.4 millimetres a year. Uh, so over 10 years, that's uh, uh, three centimetres rise, which, of course, mm. can make a huge difference uh, yeah. over 20 years. And it, and it will, will yeah. make a huge difference. Yeah. Um, and the reason is, be, if, it's, if it's a free-floating iceberg, it already displaces some water. So once it melts, it's no longer displacing water, but it has contributed water back in. But the ice that's from the land mass hasn't been displacing anything, and it's, it's purely addition, uh, purely adding water to, to the oceans, which is causing some scary results. 
Yeah. Yes. Well, we wish the satellites all the best. Good <laughs> and luck, guys. Uh, very, very glad that they're up there. Now, um, my, uh, I'm having difficulty catching the story that I wanted to for my computer, but I know. Oh, yeah, there it is. That's good. Now, there's um, a bird uh, who just doesn't have. Or hasn't had any friends. He hasn't. It's really, so it's, it's, really sad. It's sad because he's. Um, this is this is announcing the death of Nigel Nomates, the gannet. <laughs> um, poor lad. <laughs> he, he he was he was encouraged to an island called Mana Island, which is off the coast of New Zealand, where there had been. I'm I think there had been some um, a gannet population that disappeared about 40 years ago. So about 20 years ago, they decided to put. Um, some concrete gannets on the island because they're sociable they like to be where other gannets are they thought if they put some on there that will encourage others to the area and it, it did manage to encourage one nigel on his own five years ago onto the island um and he he was there on his own for five years uh he he grew very fond of one of the concrete gannets uh he courted it and try to build her a nest and and because gannets mate for life or for like at least several seasons sometimes for life he stayed with her or with it i guess um until last christmas eve three other gannets arrived for the first time in five years other gannets arrived wow. on the island which is amazing really brilliant news so you'd think then that he'd go wow <laughs> yeah walking that he would talking be flying gannets <laughs> these ones and? are different and he, he absolutely did not he didn't want anything to do with them he'd already found his true love he wasn't going to leave her side um but sadly like they set up on a different part of the island as well so they weren't around him all the time he stayed faithful right to the end and he, unfortunately he's the classic isn't he there's attracted to somebody who plays hard to get and then just yeah just <laughs> just <laughs> stays the, by her side <laughs> that's the thing my goodness me i know yes um, and it says uh, in the report here his body was found alongside one particular concrete gannet Repl replica conservationists say he believed was his partner as you were saying yeah. Anna. Uh, nigel had attempted to woo the replica in 2013 in an act of courtship which led him building uh, led to him building a nest from seaweed mud and twigs mm -hmm. for the bird you wanted to make yes, it work so you know yeah the good news is that uh, at least uh, there are more gannets now to re-establish a population there yeah. yes hopefully think, it will start hopefully. a trend of others coming back as well and it's it's you know it's not the first time they have used models of birds to attract populations back to um abandoned islands they did it um i can't remember where but they used small statues of puffins um because they're again very sociable birds they want to be where other puffins are um put little puff, puffin statues on pegs singular pegs in the ground on the cliffs of an island and the other puffins when they saw them they came they arrived and they started nesting but because the resident puffins only had one peg that they were put into the ground on, the puffins that arrived at the island started standing on one leg too because they wanted they wanted to blend in. They wanted to be like the guys that were there already. It's so a kind of mirroring, yeah. mirroring activity. Like, that oh, is so you guys do sweet. that? Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. <laughs> I think it's really sweet. That is incredibly it is indeed, sweet. Indeed. Now, look, what is not sweet is this, is this story here, but it, it did make me smile, mm -hmm. which is... Men and anxious people, I think, who, I don't know who carried this? This is the Guardian. Yeah, Men Guardian. and anxious people more likely to have been bitten by dogs. 
according to a survey. Well, I, I remember um, my parents saying to me, you know, whatever you do, you know, just, just, just be bold. Because mm. I remember uh, I, was, um, I had a paper round when I was in my teens, you know, from when I was 13. And uh, yeah. I would go uh, uh, very early in the morning deliver deliver paper, as is tradition, with paper rounds. And there were a couple <laughs> of places I went. One place in particular where there was, I didn't know if the dog would ever be loose. Yeah. You know, it chased me up the drive. It was a long drive, you know. Uh, and uh, I would run and <laughs> run like crazy down there, <laughs> run like crazy back, yeah. and uh, always afraid that this dog, who I think only came after me once, but yeah. that once is once enough. Once is enough. Exactly. Okay. And uh, I can remember talking to my parents about it, and they said, you just have to be, don't show any fear. Mm. You know, I'm not sure that works always with dogs. I don't know. I think they, like, I, I think there is something to be said that they, they notice when you're nervous, and... I, I do think that it like nerv- being nervous is contagious you know if you're if you're acting quite anxious and agitated other people will pick up on that and I do think that uh, from my experience dogs pick up on it as well and yes. wonder why you're anxious and that makes them anxious too don't you think yes, I think dogs in particular have had to evolve to read our cues as best as possible so yes yeah, they are absolutely. clever enough to notice that mm. and it it's m- also a very common trick i remember when we were training my dog they would tell us be firm be firm with him don't let him do this don't let him do this just be firm yeah be sure don't let him notice you're sweating you know what you're doing (laughs) you always have to know what you're doing or else he will he will know that he can get away with things Uh, and i suppose it's all part of this thing that dogs because they're pack animals are always interested in who's in charge yeah you know and uh, they don't mind if they're not in charge but they do need to know what their place Mm. is and if you're not sure yeah that causes uncertainty about who's in charge and that can make them anxious yes or also potentially aggressive if they want to become the leader themselves and just challenge that yeah one one interesting thing that the article did say that i think is a really valid point is um that it's unclear where the anxiety comes from like it could be that people who are anxious around dogs have become anxious around dogs because they've been bitten not that they're just always anxious around them and that's why they've been bitten you don't know which is the which is causing which and it's you know calm owners might have slightly calmer dogs and there's a there's a lot of other things getting that are involved that could be causing this this kind of trend saying that anxious people are going to get are more likely to be bitten because it, it might not be just that they can sense that you're anxious it might be just circumstances and things like that that you, that you end up in might not have dogs might not be used to them and i don't think that it's i don't think that it's fair necessarily to say that anxious people are like i know that i definitely might have just suggested that earlier but i don't think it's fair to say necessarily that anxious people are causing the dogs to be more aggressive because that's that's not always the case i don't think that i think that the own like having um Oh, I'm not sure where that thing was going. Well, it was oh. uh, you, you had me there for a moment. Yeah, yeah no, for a moment. I think, it was, I was I was almost like I was, was going to say something quite profound. Uh, <laughs> so I think I what you're hanging. trying to get to is just that uh, there. This is just like a correlational study. You cannot mm. know point to a cause. Yeah, it's correlation, but not yes. necessarily yeah, like, causation. Yes. Why? What? What happened first? 
it, it, it's well known by the way amongst journalists that when when there's a dangerous dog story mm. you know say something awful has happened a child has uh, a child has been badly injured or or something like that um suddenly that dog becomes the dangerous dog that yeah. we all ought to do something mm. about and of course what it is is that people are being bitten all the time yeah serious accidents mostly not so serious accidents some get reported some don't but when say you decide that a particular dog is a is a very dangerous dog every single time something happens they'll it, report it, it it's a major issue yeah. because yeah. it's, it's yeah. like a bias a confirmation yeah. bias that you yeah you start to see it where where you exactly. might not have necessarily noticed it yes. before and that's one of the things as well they say is that current estimates of how many people get bitten is around 740 per every hundred thousand but they reckon that it, pro- it could be as high as 1,873, which is oddly specific, out yeah. of 100,000. Because <laughs> a lot of people don't even see it necessarily as, as that big a deal. Because yeah. it might be their family dog that are training. Or it might just be that they were in somebody's yard and they got a little nip. And um, that still might be a bite, but it's not, not as yeah. big a deal. Yeah, certainly. And the study does have uh, limitations that the authors admitted to. For example, it relied on self-reporting. So often when people tell their own story, it is a little biased. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and usually a again, they also did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they also didn't take into account the dog's age, its breed, uh, its sex. Yeah. So I think it's, it's that's also something you would like to take into account because some certainly there are dog breeds that are famously more aggressive than others. The other thing that we haven't taken up from this story is that uh, it, men are far more likely to be bitten. Yeah, I'm uh, not sure why that. So it wasn't like, just about anxious that, people. That that value <laughs> does come from. They have like um, I think they have adjusted it for certain um, certain things to do with age and and um, area and things like that. And it still comes up that men are more likely to get bitten, but. I I can't. They haven't really given a reason for that at all, and I I can't really think of a reason for that. No, well, it's just yeah. it just basically says a study based on a survey of almost seven hundred people found that nearly a quarter of people said they've been bitten at least once during their life. And writing in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health, the authors reveal that when factors including age, dog ownership, and sex were taken into account, the odds of men being bitten were eighty-one percent higher than for women. That's yeah. very so it's getting high, on for twice as much. Yeah. The it's only, going that way. The only thing I can possibly think of that is that the the men that I know who have dogs tend to wrestle their dogs a lot more than the women I know. <laughs> and it might just be a play fighting thing. It could be, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah I just don't a, know. What comes to my mind perhaps might be the pheromones, maybe. Like some kind yeah, maybe. of smell. Who knows? Who can know. tell? Anyway, it's Look great beca- we've got. Be- because we've got John Ford uh, in the studio with us, who's going to um, carry on getting Bristol home when, when we're done. Hi, John. Another interesting show today. Thank oh, you there you are. Much. Yes. Oh, I wondered where I was. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, I faded <laughs> yeah. up the wrong microphone there. That's right. Yeah. 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 It's good professional show. envy. I'm just trying to keep you off the air. Oh, well, that's right. That's <laughs> very good. Another interesting show today. An eclectic Thank mix. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, what, what, was have you ever been bitten by a dog? 
Uh, no, I've been chased by two dogs. Have you? Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the fellow said, no, it's all right, they're only playing, but these were two huge Alsatian dogs. <laughs> <laughs> they just want to play with your arm. Was there anything you thought that... Uh, what, 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 what's happened in history what's happened on this all, day? Uh, oh, lots, lots has happened. We haven't got time as yet, but I'll sort of save this up till after four o'clock. Um, one thing you might be interested in, uh, who uses a... Cal- well, we all use calculators, don't we? Yeah, yeah. 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 I'd be lost. They're all on our phones these days, aren't they, calculators? Well, you can wish it happy birthday. Uh, This day in 1850, the adding machine employing depressible keys was uh, invented today. So happy birthday, I guess, is to the calculators. Oh, yes. Happy birthday, calculators. Yes. Yeah, I mean, where would we be without it? Exactly. I I think one of the amazing (laughs) things is um, that, uh, you know, those pocket calculators that, uh, well, it's the kind that you're just talking about, but, you know, from like sort of 20 years ago, the kind that children have. Um, uh, was all that they had to go to the moon on. That's right. I bet you had a slide rule, didn't you? Well, uh, yes, of course. Yeah. Yes. Well, log, and, log, and log tables. Yeah, yeah no, I've still got my log yeah. tables at home as well, yeah. And all that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, look, it's, it's, it's been great. Uh, Juliana, Hannah uh, and myself, it's been uh, uh, great to have your company. Don't forget to stay tuned for Love and Science again next week and stay tuned for John Ford getting Bristol home after the news. Have yourselves a very good evening. Thank you.